So the topic is law, same-sex marriage, and religion. Um, I can't imagine a more controversial topic. Maybe we could throw in abortion and the Iraq War. But um, even though it's controversial, it doesn't mean we should shy away from discussing it. Because it's controversial, maybe that's why we should discuss it. <clears throat> but I want to tell you about a few things I'm not going to talk about. First, I'm not going to speak about gay rights generally. That's not my area of expertise at all. Second, on the issue of same-sex marriage in particular, I will not uh, discuss the question as to whether or not same-sex marriage is good or bad for America. Um, I think the whole conference these past two days are designed to answer that question. I will talk about how same-sex marriage impacts religious liberty in particular. So those are the self-imposed ground rules for me. So when I think about this issue, I'm reminded of G.K. G. K. Chesterton, <clears throat> and I'm going to paraphrase one of his quotes. And he says, if you're walking along a path and you discover a gate in the fence, and you don't know why it's there or who put it there, the last thing you should do is knock it down until you know precisely why the gate was put there, until you know exactly what is going to be let loose when you knock it down. It's not to say you shouldn't ever knock it down, but you should know all the consequences. And I think in this debate, the angle of religious liberty has not been fully discussed, or when it has been discussed, it hasn't been discussed, I don't think in the correct, in the correct form. I think there will be, eventually, pretty close to a national rule on same-sex marriage. On one side, you have advocates that are pushing through the court system to get same-sex marriage um, nationalized that way. On the other side, you have forces that are trying to pass constitutional amendments to uh, preserve traditional marriage throughout the country. But what's going to happen as a result? Well, marriage as a concept pervades the law. It's hard to avoid it, really. And in fact, it was considered a given up until very recently that it was just between one man and one woman, so much so that many states, excuse me, a few states did not bother to include sex in the definition of what a spouse is. But now we're forced to confront these questions. So if you change this one law, the definition of marriage, it's not just one law, it's literally thousands that change. Because as I said, marriage is everywhere. And religious institutions themselves care very deeply about this issue. And these same religious institutions are regulated by these thousands of laws that include marriage as uh, part of their structures. So what happens when the definition of marriage according to the state begins to differ with that according to the religious institutions? I'll give you an example. Very recently, in Boston, Catholic Charities um, has been providing adoption services since about 1901. So what they do, they provide, they take in children that are orphans, generally, and they facilitate them finding a nice welcoming home. The state of Massachusetts regulates the adoption business. Through this regulation, they impose certain conditions. Up until now, there's been no issue between Catholic Charities and the regulation of adoption. However, with the advent of same-sex marriage, there's been a problem. Catholic Charities refuses to place children under its care into same-sex couples' households as a matter of sincere religious belief. The state of Massachusetts now recognizes, after the Goodrich decision, that same-sex marriage must be treated the same as opposite-sex marriage. Um, so what's going to happen? Well, the end result is Catholic Charities is now out of the adoption business in Massachusetts. Who would have thought that same-sex marriage would have led to religious institutions being kicked out of the adoption business? Um, 
You could have expected same-sex adoption would have naturally followed. But now the Catholic charities, they're put in between a rock and a hard place. They want to provide adoptions as a matter of religious belief. They want to do it in a particular manner as a matter of religious belief. But the state wants to do it in a different form. So given that choice, Catholic Charities has chosen um, to follow their convictions, and they will not place children in same-sex couples' households. That's one, of, one possible example. <clears throat> but it could be the tip of the iceberg, and I argue that it is. Um, licensing uh, pervades many other areas of law. You could think uh, permits to get a soup kitchen running, which many religious institutions do. Uh, institutions that provide marital and psychological counseling require licensing of some form or another. Or secondary or post-secondary uh, institutions of education also require accreditation. So in all these area, areas where the government has the ability to license, it has the ability to regulate. Now some may say, well, doesn't the First Amendment of the Constitution <laughs> prevent the infringement of religious liberty? <clears throat> Depends what you mean. Um, certainly, government cannot dictate beliefs. However, in a recent uh, series of decisions starting around 1990 with Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court announced a new rule that government is allowed to regulate conduct even if it's inseparably tied to religious belief as long as there is a neutral and generally applicable law um, as the background rule. So essentially it reduced the free exercise clause to a general non-discrimination principle. So as long as you treat all religious institutions as bad as you treat secular institutions, then the law stands, withstands um, rational basis review. Um, we disagree with that standard. I work for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. We stand for religious liberty. <clears throat> and by the way, we represent all religious traditions, from Unitarians to Baptists, etc. And one of the reasons I want to avoid the question as to whether same-sex marriage is good for America or not because our clients are all over on the map on this very question. Um, but as a matter of religious liberty, getting back to the point, after Employment Division versus Smith, we have government having much greater power to regulate the conduct that's religiously motivated of religious institutions. So I mentioned the licensing issue and the problems that will bring, but that's not the only one. Let's think of the most direct analog of licensing and same-sex marriage the civil function of same-sex marriage itself, currently in 50 states in the Union. Every rabbi, imam, or priest that's duly licensed can say, by the power vested in me by the state of fill-in-the-blank, I now pronounce you husband and wife. What if they don't want to say, I now pronounce you husband and husband, or I now pronounce you wife and wife? Well, Massachusetts is a good example again. There, justices of the peace who refuse to solemnize same-sex civil ceremonies out of religious conviction were summarily fired. So we could see it'll take just a simple extension of that line to ban religious institutions from solemnizing um, all civil marriages. I'm not talking about religious marriages here. Let's make a distinction. The government cannot force a religious institution to solemnize same-sex marriages. However, it could make it very uncomfortable if they don't. Another example, we could take the issue of the Boy Scouts of America. They take a very strong stand in their membership policies. Uh, after Boy Scouts versus Dale in 2000, the Supreme Court said they have a right under the Constitution to uh, control their membership policies where they excluded 
uh, gay rights, either activists or people who are openly gay in leadership positions in the Boy Scouts. They have been punished in various ways by different government entities for taking that position. The city of Berkeley revoked the Boy Scouts um, the right to have free marina berthing for, for boats they use for the Scouts. The city of San Diego, after a lawsuit, took away a lease that the Boy Scouts had over camp land that was on government property. In Boy Scouts versus Wyman, the Boy Scouts were kicked out of a charitable contribution campaign that was run by the state because the state disagreed with the Boy Scouts membership policies. So this is an indirect way that government institutions are showing disfavor to organizations that take a stand on the same-sex issues or religious issues. They will be extended to religious institutions. Um, we see it happening already. I'll give you another example. With employment law and labor law, um, say a religious institution has a choir director that enters a same-sex marriage. Say they disapprove of that as a matter of religious principle. Can they fire that person on that ground alone? Well, there's arguments saying that anti-discrimination laws prevent that. Um, a case in New York, a, a religious university, those Levin versus Yeshiva, their policy was that only opposite-sex married couples can live in student housing. The state of New York said, no, you must extend that benefit to same-sex couples to live in university housing. Well, that might be extended to other states where religious institutions, say a Catholic university, of which there are many, does not want to provide same-sex housing. Will they be forced? I think there's a lot of uh, precedents showing that they may be, and religious liberty will suffer as a result. And I think there's a big fish out there. It's underappreciated. And this is the issue of tax exemption. After Bob, Bob Jones University versus U.S., the case in the early mid-80s, a university took a religious position whereby in their admissions policies they disfavored um, persons that entered into interracial relationships. Terrible admissions policy. However, the Supreme Court said the federal government could look at that admissions policy and find it so contrary to public policy that they could strip away that organization's tax exemption over any religious objections. So that was the precedent that was set. So we could see that, as in the state of Massachusetts, where they have considered same-sex marriage and gay rights um, and have elevated to a very high level of protection. We see that they may take that principle and say, religious institutions, if you discriminate in any way against same-sex marriage, we will find that contrary to the common conscience of the state of Massachusetts. And therefore, you are no longer entitled to a charitable exemption because we don't consider your actions charitable. And if that is allowed to happen, there's nothing stopping the state of Massachusetts or others from revoking tax exemption. And I contend that religious liberty will once again suffer. Religious institutions run on donations by and large. And if um, the tax exempt status is remote, revoked, and their funds are taxed, and almost more importantly, if the donations that they receive are also taxed, you will see mosques, churches, congregations have to shut down and close their doors. And I really can't imagine a greater threat to religious liberty than having to close the doors of religious institutions. And I think that's the end of my time, and thank you very much.
Uh, I want to make th uh, three basic observations. The first is an analytical observation. The second is a doctrinal observation. Uh, and the third is a spiritual observation. Uh, we are talking about the issue of religion and religious liberty uh, and its relationship to uh, current efforts surrounding uh, marriage rights for gay couples. And uh, it may seem unusual, but I think we should actually talk about spirituality a little bit as well. And the first analytic observation that I want to make is that I'm troubled sometimes by even the very posing of the question, what threat does uh, recognizing equal treatment for gay people in society present to religious liberty? Because it suggests that, that the issue of, of equality for gay citizens poses some sort of distinctive or unique or unprecedented uh, threat, that is to say, uh, some distinctive or unprecedented question in the administration of religious liberty, which is not true at all. This is an issue that a lot of people care about on both sides. And so it's not surprising that there are strong feelings about it, right? But it's an issue that we've had to, it's a question that we've had to answer many times before. We'll have to continue answering. And we have a series of answers. And the question is not, uh, you know, what particular threat to our Constitution does it pose to, uh, uh, if, if an answer is given with respect to gay couples that some people are unhappy with, but rather, have we struck the right First Amendment balance? Right? I mean, it no more calls into question the validity or the, the constitutional cogency of recognizing equal treatment for gay couples to say that some people are unhappy with the state of affairs that results right? than it does to call into question the cogency of uh, equal treatment for women or for Jews or for any other group if there are some applications of that principle that some people don't like under the balance that our Supreme Court ultimately strikes with respect to free exercise doctrine. So first, I just want to push back a little bit against the, the, the set of assumptions that I think often get brought into a conversation about the civil rights of gay people and religious liberties. Um, second, uh, let me respond very quickly uh, or, or talk very briefly about the doctrine of, of free exercise rights in the United States. And let me just start by saying that uh, given that the free exercise clause provides uh, explicit protection for uh, religious, not just belief, but the exercise of religion. Um, I think that it is quite legitimate to, to criticize the Supreme Court, especially in the last 16 or 17 years since the Employment Division versus Smith case, for being perhaps too uh, 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 ungenerous in defining religious liberty under our Constitution. Um, but let me just lay out very quickly a couple of categories. Um, here's what's clear. Discrimination against a, a person or an institution based upon their religious belief or their religious affiliation, unconstitutional under the Free Exercise Clause. Um, interference with the internal administration of a house of worship, right? Pretty clearly unconstitutional under the Free Exercise Clause. If you tell uh, people uh, how to organize the administrative structure of their church, right? I think probably even if you tell people how to deal with the physical structure of the church, unless you've got a really, really good reason for doing so. Uh, there are questions about whether government has the power to intrude into the internal administration of a house of worship. If you're trying to expand it, as we know from City of Bernie versus Flores, that may be different. But existing religious institutions, I think, can lay claim to some kind of zone of non-interference. Um, interfering with those individuals who are charged with the ministerial uh, uh, that is the, the, not ministerial in the trivial sense, with the, the responsibility for ministering to uh, their, their uh, congregation, right? Uh, telling the Catholic Church that they have to hire women as well as men, 
right, as priests, uh, telling any church that they have to hire a gay uh, 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 officiant if they've got an anti-discrimination law. Clearly unconstitutional, clearly protected by the free exercise clause. And I don't think that's seriously disputed. And in fact, the ministerial function exception, as it's often referred to, uh, has been rather broadly interpreted. And it's funny, Roger mentioned the, the issue of a choir director. Um, I feel the need to say that if people are going to get into the business of firing gay choir directors, they may find themselves not having quite as satisfying services anymore. But um, uh, in fact, a number of federal courts have concluded that the ministerial uh, function exception applies to choir directors as well, because the choice of music has a liturgical uh, function, it has liturgical implications, and I'm somewhat sympathetic with those decisions. I think those are probably correct decisions. The much harder cases are cases where you've got laws of general applicability, right? Laws that uh, uh, set standards of behavior for a community, for a certain activity in the public sphere, in the commercial sphere. And you have religious individuals or religious institutions that are interacting with the larger world, but want to interact with the larger world without having to comply with the laws that govern everybody else. Right? They want exemptions from laws of general applicability. And the question arises, when does the free exercise clause entitle you to that kind of exemption? Now, the question also arises, I should just briefly say, if the legislature chooses to give you an exemption, is it allowed to do that? Is it some kind of establishment of religious preference if the legislature chooses to give you an exemption? And generally speaking, the law is quite generous in this regard. When legislatures choose to give exemptions for religious adherents or religious institutions because of a, of a complaint that there may be some uh, you know, clash with uh, religious belief, um, the court has generally been quite uh, sympathetic towards those legislative exemptions. We have several examples in California and uh, in the federal law as well. But as I say, this is the area where uh, cases are hard. And uh, in the present context, I'm not even going to begin to do justice in describing the sort of array of circumstances that arise. Let me just touch upon a, a few. Um, there are restrictions on behavior in what some people view as tenets of their religious practice or worship, right? So the Employment Division versus Smith case arose out of a Native American who wanted to use the hallucinogenic uh, cactus root, I think, peyote, um, as part of his religious practice. And the Supreme Court ultimately said that can be prohibited by law, despite the, the fact that the individual adherent was, you know, using this for religious purposes because we have this larger general set of purposes about wanting to restrict uh, use of drugs and things that the state thinks are, are dangerous. Um, these are the types of cases that rely often upon uh, an individual's interpretation of his religious obligations. That is to say, when the lawsuit gets to the court, it is often an individual making claims about what the, is required of him for his religious observance. And I think that part of the reason that those claims have sometimes been met unsympathetically is because it is sometimes greeted with some skepticism by courts that uh, you know, a certain form of illegal, otherwise illegal behavior is so central to your individual religious practice that it warrants uh, an exemption under the Free Exercise Clause. Um, another class of cases which Roger touched upon um, are, seem harder for a lot of reasons. And those are cases involving restrictions on behavior by institutions. Um, and by institutions when they're engaged in not worship, 
but in activities with, you know, interacting with the public that they may very well feel are a part of their largest religious mission or their larger, larger uh, religious belief system. Um, not worship itself, but for example, ministering to the poor or, uh, you know, providing health services. Um, uh, providing for uh, orphans and facilitating adoptions, which is part of certainly the larger sort of Christian mission of charity, even if it is not itself an act of, of worship by everyone's definition. Um, how do we treat the interaction of those sort of quasi-public, uh, one might even sometimes say quasi-commercial, depending upon the setting, uh, those activities, that is, activities that would otherwise be undertaken by either commercial actors <clears throat> or uh, non-sectarian public actors, um, and the claim of a religious institution that we want to be able to do this without complying with the laws that the community has set for standards of behavior, right? Um, those are very hard questions. Uh, my instinct is that the more it can be said that the activity either involves the religious institution being an agent of the state which I think is part of what's going on when you're talking about the adoption context, um, or when it can be said reasonably that the religious institution is performing something that is sort of quasi-commercial in nature, the type of activity that businesses would undertake if the religious institution were not, which may be an appropriate description of a hospital, for example. Um, the more that that can be said, then the weaker the claim is under the free exercise clause. That You know, you can't have the uh, you know, the, uh, the Pentecostal Ford Motor Company uh, claiming all kinds of exemptions from state law because obviously selling cars is not part of a religious mission that we can, in a sustainable way, recognize as entitled to constitutional protection. Um, these are hard questions. <laughs> these are very hard questions. Um, and once again, I, I need to reiterate that uh, they're hard questions that have come up before and will come up again. And they are not uniquely implicated by recognizing the rights of gay and lesbian couples. Um, third, and I'll just mention this very briefly, uh, subsidies. Different kinds of subsidies that uh, uh, government offers to encourage uh, certain nonprofit or charitable activities to encourage uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, beneficial behavior. Um, and if, are you allowed to violate state law in various ways and still be entitled to uh, those subsidies? The Sea Scouts case, the Boy Scouts case, is an interesting example of this. Um, I'll just mention that uh, it's actually a very important fact about that case. The, the group of families and children who were ultimately denied free access to the Berkeley Marina had uh, quite strongly disavowed the belief system of, of the Boy Scouts that uh, they were uh, disapproving of, of gay people. And they said in the litigation, we have to reserve the possibility of excluding gay people in order to maintain our affiliation with the Boy Scouts from which we get a lot of benefits. But we don't believe that. Um, and uh, it was actually relying explicitly upon that very fact that the California Supreme Court unanimously said, you don't get an exemption from the law on, on that basis. It would have been a much harder case if the Sea Scouts had come in and said, in fact, we do believe that homosexuality is wrong and we do want to exclude gay people. Um, and that's part of our belief system and you're penalizing us for our belief system. That would be a harder case. Um, I think it probably still comes out the same way, but it's a harder case. Um, which gets me to the issue of spirituality that I wanted to mention. Um, I think I've got about three minutes left, and a three-minute discussion of spirituality will necessarily be uh, very brief. But the basic point that I want to make, perhaps, for discussion is the following. Um, this sort of picks up on something that Camille Williams said in her talk, and I'm not sure. Oh, there, there you are. Um, 
in a very important sense, we really constitute ourselves by the actions that we take and by the stories and narratives that we tell about ourselves and about who we are. And one of the things that I found the most remarkable in the work that I've done on gay and lesbian rights generally is the powerful trend towards uh, folks who are very opposed to equal treatment of gay and lesbian citizens telling more and more unflattering stories about themselves. In the military context, uh, the evolution of the anti-gay military policy has <clears throat> reached a point where the explanation, the official explanation for why we need to exclude gay people from the military is that straight soldiers won't be able to do their jobs properly if they're serving with gay people. Their unicohesion and morale will suffer, despite the fact that all of our allies have eliminated the gay ban with no detrimental impact upon military performance whatsoever. The Pentagon is telling the story that our soldiers are uniquely sexually immature and uniquely unable to deal with the possibility of encountering out gay men and lesbians in the service. In the marriage context, um, regardless of the, the terminology one uses, I think it is difficult to escape the observation that a lot of the arguments about threats to the institution of marriage that are made in conjunction with saying we should deny gay and lesbian couples the right to participate in this civil institution, uh, really r tell a story about the relationship that straight couples have to their own place within the civil community and to the institution that they have chosen to become a part of, which is really distressingly weak. Um, I mean, the suggestion that straight couples will simply no longer be able to enjoy the benefits of this cultural institution because uh, the knowledge that there are people elsewhere getting married who don't fit their description of what a marriage should look like is going to irremediably uh, destroy their own relationship with the sort of generations-long story of what marriage is supposed to be. That's a distressing way to characterize the relationship that straight couples have with the institution of marriage. And I'm not going to get to offer the long uh, explanation of the harm to the Christian message of the Christian gospel that I think is associated with uh, uh, the story that's being told by a lot of folks, not in this room, but, but out in the public, um, about why reacting to gay people and gay couples with inclusion and acceptance is fundamentally inconsistent with the message of the Bible. Um, but, but I would ask those who at least hear these arguments a lot to, to ask yourself the question, right? What does it mean to take a message which is fundamentally about compassion and charity and, uh, and humility and to assert in public over and over again that that message is actually fundamentally defined by the few references to condemnation in this long book that you can sort of draw out of context and offer um, as a basis for debate. I find it distressing, and I don't think it serves uh, either side of the debate very well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to Mr. Williams and all those who have invited us and have provided this forum. Um, I have just a couple of things I'd like to get to. I have about 348 points, and I'll start now. Um, first, I just uh, would like to recognize, in terms of the family, so if you can't read back there, am I old enough to, when will I be old enough to start suing people? Um, I told Stuart, it's not a great picture, but uh, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the fuzzy factor by having pictures of my kids up there. The interesting thing is that's not one of my kids down below. That's my, 
That's my, it looks like a demon from hell, but that is my, uh, my, my sister's grandkid. Uh, some of my best friends are horses. That's my horse. That's my daughter. I'm not her biological father. Um, that's my nephew's son, and he's named after me. That's my dog. Uh, that's my daughter's horse, and I admit to weeping like a baby when he died in October, and I don't go any further there. Plus, who doesn't like a black Harley? So I'm already, I already should have some things with you. Um, let's speak about non-traditional families, because I think one thing we need to recognize is the religious diversity that exists. And as a Mormon, I believe I express a certain type of diversity, one that I experienced as a child. I experienced it every day in Arizona when I'd go to school and be taught in history about uh, who Joseph Smith was, who Brigham Young was, who the Mormons were, and I had to sit there and be traumatized as I explained, I'm not sure you've got it right when I was a kid. This gives me a little bit of perspective of how some of these issues are more traumatic depending on who you are and where you sit. And so, and by the way, I'm a part of the only religion I know of in the United States where the, uh, the U.S. government sent an army against us, Johnson's Army to Utah, because we were pro or anti-slavery. Um, and I suggest that's the reason that Mormons had an extermination order against them in Missouri as well. Now, what does this mean? This means, in part, and by the way, you should recognize one thing. Uh, Mormons, some, as a group, when they're married in the temple, have a very low divorce rate. So my, my marriage and my family might not be like other marriages, especially when you look at the one about my mother-in-law actually loved me and foreclosing a whole source of jokes that I can't use anymore. Uh, now, here's what I'd like us to consider. And I'm citing Svi Shapiro and David Propel, a, a book that I would assume that probably Stuart knows. Well, there he is. <laughs> um, it is possible to conclude also that, that there is nothing left to unify us, no common human goal or vision, nothing for those of us who seek fundamental social change to attend to and support, but the endless proliferation of different voices, each trying to find some justified place in the sun after imprisonment and silence or exclusion. I'd ask us to remember who was involved, who was suppressed amongst the Nazis, and remind you of a couple of Mormon kids who thought they could, in Germany, uh, successfully awaken their neighborhood to what the Nazis were doing. And they used the mimograph machine down at the LDS ward building. And they didn't, think, they didn't realize there were only a few mimeograph machines. Now, they lived a life of hell during that period. Now, I think that there are others we can remember. I think together... I would suggest, and, and Stuart and I have searched for things that we disagree with fundamentally in a sense, and one of them is I think the public schools are a little more fragile to political attacks from the religious right than he, he thinks is a little more robust. And so that's where we're going to try to disagree. And I'm going to su uh, suggest that having a common American experience in the public schools is important to our uh, shared experience and a way to not make people others, to be able to speak. And so we put people on the moon but had hell on our own earth. I think that I like this. Um, we need a discourse that speaks to healing and repair, uh, that must touch people's spiritual and emotional lives to what have been called the feminine moral images of wholeness, compassion, care, and responsibility. And I would submit that as a Mormon and as whatever religion I'm standing here representing at another point, you don't have to tell me how I have to believe for me to be able to express those things. And I don't have to tell someone else what they should do in order for us to work out these types of together progressive movements. I like this. We speak to an education based on traditions that urge us to beat the swords into plowshares, not to develop more deadly swords. 
a vision in which lions lie down with lambs, not one in which we train lambs to be like lions, and a universal dream of milk and honey for all, not the American dream of champagne and caviar for a few. Let me just show you a little bit of research that I find interesting, but not, it's not great research, I understand that. But in the, uh, in the world of behavioral economics, which is a, a field I just dabble with a tiny bit, and politics, because I teach a couple of graduate courses in politics, including language policy and education, and there's an argument against referenda right there, the way California, Arizona, and Massachusetts have limited the rights of language minority students through a resort to mobocracy at the ballot place, which is what I would characterize most referenda votes. You now have the ability, and we have the ability, to focus group words, and I would submit that's why Reagan always said, well, there you go again. Not because it had any forensic strength or weight during the debate, but because in focus groups, the lines went sky high whenever he said that. So I'm going to just suggest to you, with that combined with the ability to send people out with little palm pilots, with messages sent to different people's people who purchase uh, shotgun shells, for example, which you can do, both parties, the Republicans and the Democrats aren't a lot different there, and you can send them that message with good, eager workers like John Kerry did and like others did in the South and the Republican Party. And you can send a message to that small constituency that you would be embarrassed to send to the large constituency. I, could, I, I contend that we now have a way to speak in an ugly way to small, quiet groups that we wouldn't say in open places in a political forum and space. Public education gives us a hope to overcome that kind of technological sophistication. So I just decided to do a little bit of this with some students. And so at BYU, I now have this, I don't know if you're using it here, but I have the facility to have that little credit card thing, and they can anonymously push a button and answer questions, including quiz questions. I can instantaneously flash the results up there. That's anonymity. By the way, I'm on the Institutional Review Board at my college, and so I got permission to talk about this. But this is, just to show you what it's like and how it's been used, to help teach my students that words, there are words of art, and lawyers, we use words of art all the time, but there are words with emotional portent also, and we need to attend to those too. And so I'm just, just a, a little quick recap of some research. It's really about avian flu that some Harvard researchers did, and they discussed it in these ways. There's two programs, as you can see, and it was discussed with these words, and we don't have time to look at that too much, but I told my students, now pick which program you want. Drug A, drug B, program A, program B. One says 200 people will be saved. One says one-third probability that 600 will be saved. Okay. There are those who would say those words mean the same. As an epidemiolo epidemiologist, David, you might want to consider public health member, um, and learn how to say epidemiologist as you do that. They found risk aversion just from the words were different based on the words. 72% shows program A over B, but in my class, 80% did, okay? But this was at the Harvard large study. Um, how about if, if adopted, 400 people will die, program C. If adopted, one-third probability, no one will die, and a two-thirds probability, 600 people will die. Okay, my class, 68% chose number two. Their research, 78% chose program D or the last one. Now, the point is this. Risk aversion and ability to deal with things has a lot to do with words and how they're used. And so I'm not going to spend much time on this because I'm going to cut to the chase somewhat because I saw the five-minute sign already. That's amazing. Um, I, I think that students, how we discuss public education in and of itself has great power. And I'm bringing Terry Schwartz from the American Association of School Administrators to the Education Alliance to June 9th. 
And they're talking about research that they've shown what you should use, when you, what words when you're talking about accountability and those sorts of things. And it's vulnerable to the word you use. This is what my students chose. So evidently, each is much more important. Don't say all, for example. And by the way, I'm just going to zip past some of that because I want to get to something that I'd like you to see. That I was able, without any money, to do something kind of like focus grouping. So I said, not agree and disagree. This is in my class now. Uh, a class of graduate students, and the IRB will not allow me to tell you what class it's in, okay? But it's a class of grad... I, I promised I wouldn't. So a class of grad students at BYU. By the way, you have some conceptions about BYU. I'd like to make sure you understand that the majority of BYU students don't come from Utah. And the second largest group do come from California, by the way. Um, for the following slides, rate on a 1 to 7 scale and answer. How do you feel about the statement or the question? One will be high. So I'm just saying affinity. I want their sensitized to how the words hit us, okay? So here's the question. Gay, straight, and lesbian alliances help all students feel safe in Utah public schools. I'm getting private data that can't be traced back to them. And so the top would be a strong affinity or liking. Not agree or disagree, just we're talking about words and things, okay? And so now you see a slight sort of representation. I know that this is not good research. This is not replicable. This is not, not the right end. I'm trying to teach about, to my students, about the sensitivity about language. Um, gay, straight, and lesbian alliances help gay and lesbian students feel safe in Utah public schools. That seems to be understood more. It's shifted a little to the left, isn't it? Gay, straight, and lesbian alliances build support for Utah public schools. Now we have a politically embedded question. And I think they see probably the reality. Now this isn't just Utah probably, but I don't know. Same-sex marriages should be given legal recognition in Utah. I just, just, just so you know, we had a vote of 80% here. In that group, the vote would be 80% the other way. But look at this. This is what I want us to get to. Well, not that one. This one. I mean, that one's, that one's nothing exciting there. It's just sort of understood. Here, how do you feel about the statement, Utah public schools should celebrate great gay and lesbian students as part of celebrating multicultural diversity? Not too keen on that. How about this? The civil rights of gay and lesbian students should be protected in Utah public schools. So that, to me, is where we begin to find common ground. I've seen people on one side, now I've seen people on the other side, and it's the words and it's what we're talking about in a common endeavor. And so, uh, I just need to go so fast. Um, I better go to, uh, I just ask a question. Do you care, do we care if religious groups are the minors, canaries that leave the public schools? Could we say, well, we want more progressive religious people to come back in the public schools. We don't care if they leave. I'm going to suggest some, some data points, and we're not going to talk about NCLB's Equal Access Clause for Boy Scouts. Stuart and I are going to look into that more. I don't know why there's a thundering silence about that. Um, and so if you know more about it, let me know. But No Child Left Behind says you cannot keep out Boy Scouts as a, scout, as a, as a uh, school or you lose all federal funding. Now, is, is that, why are we talking about that one, by the way, in, in America? Um, I'm going to just suggest that dual immersion schools, that when Anglos go to dual immersion schools, they have different life outcomes. They tend to marry Latinos. They tend to work in a Latino community. So what does that mean? I think it means being together has a lot to do with... Um, I, I guess I can't read Levinas on the other, but um, the other calls me to its very existence, recognizing others to feel obligated to respond. Am I out of time or are you just moving? One minute, okay. Um, violence consists in ignoring this opposition. I better go to this. Okay. Would you favor or oppose teaching about the gay and lesbian lifestyle as part of the curriculum in the public schools in your community? That's a Phi Delta Kappa poll. By the way, those are the years they asked this question. Non-public school parents were different than public school parents. That's my point. Now, 
Uh, how about teaching as one alternative, no moral judgment? Non-public school parents were different than public school parents. I'm suggesting that we need to learn to speak together in ways that deal with our most important progressive desires and don't leave people out, including deeply religious people, where we should be partners without requiring a, a religious group to say, you've got to also allow and consecrate the marriage covenant for same-sex marriages. Let's just find a differ about that. And let's work on what we agree on. Um, and so I would just suggest, I don't have time to suggest, never mind, I better go to some, some modest, modest recommendations. Let religious students and families be religious. Let gay students be gay. Let gay teachers be out and gay. But provide safeguards that, that, that help, I know they're just attitudes, help others feel safe. Train all adults, by the way, not to be alone with kids. All adults. It's creepy when adults in, in elementary school are always being alone with kids, heterosexual or not. Pedophilia just goes both directions that way. Um, what, I guess I'm going to have to go past this to, um, if you open, in Hanson and Ann Arbor Public Schools, if you open a forum in which you're going to discuss religion and gay, lesbian, bi, transgender, transsexual issues, as the state, be careful Although Stuart has helped me sort of take this case and put it to the side and distinguish parts about it, be careful, though, about making nice and about saying to religious people, you aren't quite what we're looking for on this issue. You're going to be silenced. I believe whether that's appropriate constitutionally or not, it doesn't matter in a sense, although it does to me, it's going to have gigantic political repercussions. And so we need to, while we deal with free speech, deal with also, and protection of civil rights, deal with some others. So I guess I better stop right there. Um, here's one I've got to point out to be careful about referenda. I just am troubled about referenda, especially in California, and the history of referenda. I don't think that is a very good scalpel-like way to deal with minority rights, and it troubles me. And um, can I just, just let me, I better go to this one. If you were to go to the fourth floor and Danny took me up to the fourth floor, I would see the Los Angeles Temple, the LDS at Los Angeles Temple. And on, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so should I put a picture of my kid again? Um, so on that is this prophet, Moroni. And here's what he said, speaking to a people that's about to annihilate him. Charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Now, this is not from the Bible. This is from the Book of Mormon. We need to include other texts when we discuss uh, religious groups, in my opinion. I think that there's plenty of room to embrace the, the enterprise of the public school, and time is up. And so now I give you Stuart Beagle. Thank you. One of the great pleasures of being part of this event was dialoguing with Scott over the past few weeks. And we've had serious and, and lengthy dialogues on the phone, on email, and um, last night at dinner. So at least half of my presentation was already included in Scott's slides, and um, I thought that was pretty efficient. You could also see why what was supposed to be a debate might not quite be a debate. In fact, I think in the few things I want to say, I'm debating something other than Scott and something other than what Scott has said. I, we generally agree that same-sex marriage will have an impact on the public schools. I'm just not worried about it. I think that more educators will be out, and I think it will help foster more openness and more understanding, as I indicated in my abstract. So I'd like to talk about 
<coughs> sorry, a little under the weather as well. Uh, what I'd like to talk about um, is the whole concept which Scott has raised about openly religious students and faculty and openly gay students and faculty in the public schools. As someone who has been both uh, at various times in my life, uh, grew up in a very deeply religious family, and I'm now a very openly gay educator, so openly gay that I get insulted if people say I don't look gay. Uh, so you need to know that. You need to know that that's where I'm coming from. But at the same time, I have a very deep and abiding belief in God. And I also believe in intelligent design, and that sometimes gets my students very angry, or at least very freaked out, because it's often not consistent with other issues that I have. So that's where I'm coming from, and I sincerely believe that there is a way to reconcile religion and homosexuality in the public schools, and that public schools can grow. And I share... Uh, basically all of Scott's recommendations, the modest recommendations. And I think you'll see when we get to the last part of my handout on page two that I don't think there are really any inconsistencies uh, in our presentation. So having said all that, so, sort of long-winded, um, you know, I'm a professor at this law school. I'm used to standing up uh, in these rooms and, and talking, you know, distributing handouts. Sometimes I have a tendency to be long-winded, but uh, I prepared this this morning. I finally realized when I woke up this morning what, what the debate was going to be about. Uh, I, I've prepared about five or six of these in the two weeks I've been talking to Scott, and they're all a little different. Um, I included at first an excerpt from my abstract just for reference. And just briefly, I want to indicate that uh, educators' rights to be out, just like students' rights to be out, right to be out, rights to be out have grown over the last 10 to 20 years. The right to be out is rooted in the First Amendment, right to express who you are, and the 14th Amendment right to be treated equally as a result of expressing who you are. And it applies not just to LGBT persons, but to religious persons, to people whose race or ethnicity may not be obvious, to, to people with disabilities. It's a very broad right. And in fact, I'm going to be writing a book on that. Uh, so it's exciting for me to be able to play with these ideas uh, toward the research for that book. Uh, Lawrence v. Texas, the 2003 case that we're all familiar with, uh, no question it has strengthened the right to be out because of not only language relating to privacy, but relating to equal dignity and equal respect. So having said all that, uh, if we're talking about public schools where people can be openly gay and openly religious and, and not hurt each other but only work together for the common good, I think we need to recognize some of the myths that are out there. One of the things that the Williams Institute is about a lot is, is uh, confronting myths. Uh, uh, the research that uh, several folks uh, presented yesterday um, from the Williams Project and a lot of the research that is being presented um, I think has done a lot to dispel some of the myths that are out there. I think uh, though that a lot of 
religious people who I speak with, including my doctoral students, including education professionals that I know, still have a lot of misconceptions about LGBT people. And as, as recently as Thursday night, when we were covering these issues in, in one of my doctoral classes here, um, the whole issue of um, flaunting sexuality. Why can't, why can't gays keep their personal to themselves? You hear that a lot in the public schools when, when educators are essentially told, well, you know, keep it to yourself. It's, it's, it, you know, it's fine that you're gay, but it's really nobody's business. It's not the business of the kids, not the business of the schools. Uh, well, the, the answer I always have to that, and, and it's tough to, to hold back in a class when I'm supposed to be conducting inquiry and not, and not presenting one side of an issue, is that when heterosexual teachers talk about their wives and kids, when, when they do that alone, they are not only identifying as heterosexual, but they are talking about sex. They are implicitly talking about sex. When Scott showed you his family, he was not keeping his private life to himself. He was on some level flaunting his sexuality. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. Uh, but I want to make that, it's surprising how many people don't see the equivalency there. That if you're going to let heterosexual people talk about their family, and it's going to be fine, nobody even questions it, then gay and lesbian teachers have to be allowed to do the same if, we, if we're going to be equal. And it shouldn't make any difference to the students, no matter how young the students are. Because if you can tell your kindergarten students, well, here's a picture of my wife and a picture of my child, you should be able to tell your kindergarten students, well, here's a picture of my male partner, and here may be a picture of our biological child or a child we adopted, just, just as an example. So that, that myth that gays and lesbians, when allowed to, will flaunt our sexuality uh, is, is a myth, and it's a myth on so many levels, and it's also a misconception. Other myths, in the, in the era that I came of age in the 60s, gays were seen as security risks, mentally ill, and heathens. Uh, obviously, as growing up in a deeply religious family, I didn't want to be seen as any of the three, so I didn't even have an option to go there. But some of that is still left over. You still hear things, gays associated with security risk idea, which is a McCarthy-era concept. All the gays who were drummed out of government service in that era for no reason other than that they were gay. Uh, some of the myths that persist today uh, one of the most uh, nefarious is that we are hypersexualized predators who cannot be trusted. And that's particularly noxious in a public school environment. Gays are no more hypersexualized than straights. There are heterosexual people who are incredibly hypersexualized, as you know, and there are gay people who are incredibly hypersexualized, but nobody has a corner on that. Some Straight people are incredibly predatory. Some gay people are incredibly predatory. Some straight people cannot be trusted. And some gay people cannot be trusted. We're all human beings. There's good and bad in every group. 
One of the other myths, of course, is that we are all liberal. We are not. A very large percentage of gays are conservative. Another myth, of course, is we are all white. We are uh, incredibly diverse. And in fact, uh, Gary Gates' research has shown that uh, gay couples, there's a larger incidence of biracial couples in the gay communities than in the heterosexual communities. And finally, the, the myth that we are all uh, irreligious. A very large percentage of gays are deeply religious. A very large percentage are folks like me who grew up in a deeply religious family who could not stay in that environment and come out, but still have deep and abiding beliefs in God and have a lifelong journey of trying to reconcile the two. And you have many gays who are deeply spiritual. And then you have many gays who are agnostic or atheist, just the same as with heterosexuals. I think it's important to recognize those myths. So in light of all that, um, in the transition that we're in now, if you can take a look on the back of the handout, top of the page. I thought, I, as long as we're speaking totally openly, and Scott and I have had incredibly open conversations, why LGBTs mistrust organized religion and see it as a threat? I think if we don't recognize this, we can't get to the point of reconciliation, that I, which I think is where we have to go. At this point, since being gay is totally legal, and I, I emphasize that to my students, it's totally legal to be gay in this country at this point in time. It's only been a few years since Lawrence that that's the case. Religion may be the only organized entity with regulatory authority over many Americans that formally prohibits people from being LGBT or from participating in their communities if they're openly LGBT. That reason alone makes it tough for a lot of gays and lesbians to trust religion or to, to embrace religion. It's key. It, it's the obvious. It's stating the obvious, but it, it needs to be stated. What also needs to be stated is that many denominations and many religious leaders don't feel that way. Reformed Judaism, the largest branch of organized Judaism, is totally accepting of gays and lesbians and totally accepting of ordaining gay and lesbian rabbis who officiate at same-sex commitment ceremonies and marriages. It's just an example. It's certainly not the only one. I mean, you heard Scott. Scott represents the Mormon church here today on, on some level, and you saw, you know, he isn't saying gays get, in, get back into the closet and we don't want to talk to you, we don't want to have anything to do with it. He's not saying that. Religion is consistently cited in legislative debates as a justification for not granting LGBTs the same rights as their straight counterparts. Uh, you saw in the, in the California legislature in the debate over the Mark Leno bill to legalize same-sex marriage, how many legislators used religion in the public arena as their argument against same-sex marriage. Many persons disown LGBT members of their biological family in the name of religion. I know because I've lived that. Openly violent anti-LGBT rhetoric is part and parcel of speeches by members of the clergy in formal religious settings all over the world, even as we speak. 
And finally, what needs to be recognized is that in the name of religion, gays are executed. They hung gay teenagers in Iran over the last few years for being gay. They were hung. They were executed in public. So these things need to be recognized. This is tough territory, and it's complicated. But I do have an optimistic vision. I've always been really optimistic, and I continue to be. And these are some of the things that I would include in my optimistic vision, that we need to build on the work of so many people of goodwill uh, who have worked on enhancing the right to be open, the right to be out, working together in an atmosphere of mutual respect and understanding. Uh, thank you. And I, again, I want to thank the Williams Institute for, for inviting me to this. This was tough for me to um, say yes to because this is so personal for me on so many levels. But uh, I was really honored to be part of this program. Thank you very much.